All right, so today we're going to wrap up a series we started about three weeks ago. All right, what's the title of it? All right, The Incomparable God. So uh, this is our doxology for the year. If this is your first Sunday here this year, uh, at the end of every service, we close with kind of a benediction rather than a prayer. We'll quote some scripture to try to send us out, reminding us of something that's true, of who God is, who we are in him. And so this doxology from Romans 11 is what we have selected for 2018. And we've been working our way through these four verses over four Sundays. So uh, at the beginning, we've seen Paul call out like, oh, remember that O? Oh? That was an O oh of like, I am deeply satisfied. I, I, he was just overjoyed. Uh, it's, it's exuberance, right? It's not, oh, the train is on the track and I have to turn around, oh. It's, oh, man, salvation has come for every sinner. Mercy, has, you know, God has shut up all the disobedience, but mercy is available to all as well. We've got the ability to become children. We're no longer condemned. The Spirit dwells. We don't have to be sinners or submit our lives to sin anymore. Just lots of good things that Paul's writing about. So this happens a lot of times when you share your faith with somebody, right? It, it encourages you. And so the more you start talking about God, like it's starting to rejoice your heart a little bit. And so before he gets into chapter 12 and on, what's our responsibility to this incomparable God? You got this little doxology here. Like It's kind of like I can't go any further without just giving God praise, right? So we sang it today, kind of a summary of what Paul did. To God be the glory, great things he has done. And that's kind of the summary of these four verses. And so we talked about, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge there in verse 33. Uh, we also saw on our second week that sometimes we think we know best, uh, right? Or we know better. And we say that a lot. Oh, I know better. I know better than you how to live my life. I know better than my children how to live their life. And so sometimes I want to play God for them. I have a role there, but there's also a spirit that lives in me that lives in them, and I've got to cooperate with that spirit rather than say, this is what the spirit's telling you to do because I said so and I'm your dad, right? Get in line with me. And so I've got to allow freedom there. It's part of my own growth as well. So sometimes we think we know better, but God knows best, right? Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has given counsel to him? The answer is... No one, right? No one brings counsel to God. All right, then last week we looked at our indebtedness, right? And when we are indebted on this planet, we have to repay that. You have a mortgage, you have to repay it. You have a car loan, you have to repay it. You have student loans, you have to repay it. Doctor bills, you have to repay it, right? So for salvation, do we have to repay it? No, right? We can't repay it. And so when we live from a position of, oh, I'm trying to repay God, that's miserable, right? Because you'll never meet that challenge. And so we're free and clear from the moment of belief through the blood of Christ. And, and so we're no longer indebted. And that was verse 35 we saw last week, right? Who can give to God in such a way that obligates God to pay something back? So we don't give obligating God. We don't give to try to repay. We just simply give as an act of worship for the great things he has done and for the great God that he has allowed us to know him to be. All right, just a simple response there. So we're going to move into verse 36 here, and uh, we're going to do that. I'm going to ask you a question to start with. So have you ever thought of yourself as incomparable? Like maybe in a specific area. Nobody compares to me in this area. Have you ever thought of yourself maybe as irreplaceable? You know, sometimes in a little bit of arrogance, maybe we don't even realize it. I'm sure there's times in my own life where I've said that. You know, well, man, I do this, 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 and this, 
and like it needs to be done. Well, there's probably a lot of things that I do that don't necessarily need to be done. I just do because I feel like they need to be done, right? So maybe I feel like I'm irreplaceable. You know, one day I got a list, uh, and it had all these different job descriptions from an individual, and they said, listen, I'm leaving, and you're going to have to find somebody to do all this stuff. And so when I looked at that, I said, oh, so... I didn't say it, but in my head, I thought, oh, you, you're just irreplaceable. That's what it is, right? You're incomparable. There's nobody like you. And so sometimes we live as though we're incomparable, right? So let me give you some examples here, and maybe you can identify with these people. You remember the rock band T-Rex? You guys still have that eight-track? You remember that one? All right, so Mark Bolin was a rock star. He was uh, from the band T-Rex. And here's something that he said about God. Now, I love, this was before blogs, all right? So this was a little blurb in a newspaper, The Quill. I want you to listen to the title of this little section. It says, no matter how thin you slice it, it's still baloney, right? That's pretty good, right? No matter how thin you slice it, it's still baloney. And so this is what uh, Mr. Gene wrote about Mark Bowen as far as he said. He said, if God came into my room I would obviously be in awe, but I don't think I'd feel humble. I might cry, but I know that he would dig me like mad. Now, what does dig me like mad mean? All right, so he would just, yeah, he would like, he would think that I'm just as awesome as he is. Like, he'd walk in the room and be in just as much awe of me as I would be of him. Is that how you think heaven's going to be for you? All right. Well, some people think that's how it's going to be when they come into God's presence. What about the gentleman uh, Cassius Clay? Right? What was his name? What did he go by? All right, so Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali used to proclaim of himself that I am the, I am the greatest. Right? Isn't it interesting when people claim greatness, it seems to be so short-lived. I mean, he was good, better, and he was great for a while, but that was, just, that was a real small peak in his life. Then he came back down the other side and he started getting beat up. And he was good and then he was uh, not so good and then he got a disease. Right? And you watched him struggle later there in his life. You see how quickly greatness can fade. One of my favorite stories about Muhammad Ali is one time he was boarding an airplane. You guys remember this? And he said, uh, the stewardess came by. It was time for the plane to depart. And she said, you know, Mr. Ali, you need to buckle your seatbelt. He said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which she replied, Superman don't need no plane, all right? Isn't that awesome? I wish I could think that quick. I usually think that about five minutes later. You know, come back. I got a good comeback for you, all right? Superman don't need no plane. And so it's reported that he ended up buckling his seatbelt. He's like, well, yeah, she's right. She's got a point. So he thought he was the greatest, right? Other people declared him the greatest as well. Um, like he was incomparable. No one could have any say over him. And yet ultimately life and, and death have. Uh, on a little bit more somber note here, think of a guy we know uh, as the Oklahoma City bomber. Back in 1995, you remember Timothy McVeigh? Timothy McVeigh had 4,800 pounds of explosive in a vehicle right in front of a building that just literally blew half the building away. 168 people killed, hundreds more wounded. 19 of those 168 were from a daycare within that building. They were children. All right, um, before, now Timothy McVeigh was, was put to death, right? Lethal injection. Before he was put to death, though, he was asked, do you have any final words? And what he ended up saying, though not verbally, he handed to the warden uh, the poem Invictus. 
which means, it's Latin, it means unconquerable. Right? And I just want to read that to you. Just think of the idea of being incomparable here. It says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Under, or in, the, in the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Does that sound unconquerable? That sounds like somebody who feels like he's pretty well in charge of his life. As a matter of fact, Timothy McVeigh was quoted as saying, if I'm wrong about heaven and hell, that I'll be able to plead my case before God and that God would look at me and allow me to, whatever, make recompense or he would think that I'm just pretty awesome as well. All right, so some of the things he said there, my soul is unconquerable, I will not cry aloud, I will not bow my head, I will not be afraid, I may have punishments that fill a scroll, but I'm the captain of my soul. That sounds like somebody who feels as though they are incomparable. What about if we go to the scriptures, we find a real tall guy, right? One of the tallest guys that we might think of, his name's Goliath. Remember Goliath kind of shaking his fist at God, the armies of the living God, right? He comes out to defy the armies of the living God. So he thought that he was unconquerable. He thought that he was incomparable. And for many, many days, the Israelites would flee when he came out. And yet it just took a little boy of faith, right, to go out with a stone and a knocking him to the ground and beheading him with his own sword, right, to prove that he was not incomparable. And even Satan himself, right, Satan himself, this created angel, which was, according to Scripture, the most beautiful, the most eloquent, the most intelligent of God's design, who ultimately says, I'll be better than God. I'll sit high on that throne. I will overthrow and rule. And yet we know that he's a defeated foe, right? His days are numbered. And ultimate destruction is his name. It's just a matter of time before Christ returns and winds things up on his end of things. So lots of times we've found people or we find ourselves thinking that we're irreplaceable or we're incomparable or we're unconquerable. And yet there's one who stands alone who can hold that title. And that's God, right? That's why we've called this the incomparable God out of Romans chapter 11. So if you'd like to turn there, we're going to find Paul here once again. As his heart is stirred, I mean, his emotions here are just lit. He's excited. He's exuberant. He's running out of words to try to explain what it is that he uh, knows to be true in his soul. Uh, but to the best of his ability, he gives us these four words. And so he's going to ask us, ultimately, to submit to this incomparable God, all right? So let's read here again these four verses. Specifically today, we'll highlight verse 36. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him 
And through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Right? Amen. And so we're going to focus today on this last verse here, 36. We'll highlight a few things if you'd like to track in your bulletin as we make our way through. You don't have to at all. But we're going to talk about this from the all things perspective. Okay? All things. Now, I don't know, in your house, our parents used to teach us you shouldn't say words like all and never. Right? I'll never do that. Because usually what happens? Somewhere we do. Or you say that all the time. Really? I say that all the time? No, I, I probably don't, right? So all and ever, sometimes we say we shouldn't go those directions, but here Paul goes there, and he's going to say all things. And let's look here at these three different things uh, that he qualifies the all things with, all right? So initially here, all things are going to find their beginning in God. And so as Paul considers the incomparable God, he's going to say that God is the origin of, of all things, right? He wrote earlier in Romans 1 and 2 about how the created had quit worshiping the creator. And so he makes a very clear distinction. There was someone outside of time. There was someone who was living who was able then to bring life into existence. So it just makes sense, really. Sometimes I think we overcomplicate these things. Life has to come from life. True? Have you ever seen life come from non-life? Other than in a uh, maybe a modern day biology textbook, right? I mean, we teach the theory of evolution as the fact of evolution, right? It's unfounded. The basic premise of that is it has to start. Something had to come from nothing, and so it takes an extreme amount of faith to go from that beginning to now say that life begets life begets life when somehow something non-living had to spur on life. And so that's a problem with that theory, at least from my perspective. And part of, the, part of the reason many secular scientists today are moving away from that theory is that very reason. We know life comes from life. We don't want to say and give credit to God as though God is the author of that life, but we can't walk with Mr. Darwin anymore, at least not hand in hand, simply because we cannot believe the way that he taught. So creation declares the glory of God. And what creation declares is that there is a creator, right? Do you ever look at creation and just go, man, God, this is awesome. You see a sunset, you see an animal. For me, like what clinched it for me when I was in my teens was that how the human body functions, like with an extreme amount of order, how all of its systems partner together. And you want me to believe that that was just totally random, you know, I heard the expression one time, if you took about 500 people to a salvage yard, had them all face opposite one another, pick up a piece of a car, throw it over their head, when they all turned around, it would be a working car. That's the idea of non-life producing life. We would say that's absurd, right? Randomness producing order. No, it just makes sense. Order comes from someone who is in charge or who is organized or who has order within his nature. It's really not that complicated. Life has to come from life. Intelligence comes from intelligence. And when uh, scientists started looking at DNA and finding that it's this translation of information, it's this information highway, for many secular scientists, that became something that drew them into wonder about a God. Because information has to come from someone who is informed. It's not just random. Right? And so God said this a long time ago. You know, I love the fact that he didn't just create things and say, oh, let's see if they can figure it out. 
Let's see what kind of crazy ideas they can come up with. No, he didn't say that. He said, I'm going to tell them how it all began. Um, and it began with me, right? Verse 1, Genesis 1 says, In the beginning, what? God created. Okay? That's not pastor rhetoric. You know, that wasn't just re a religious people trying to oppress others and say, this is how it really happened. God started it all and said, I'm going to let you in on the secret that it was us who did it. Father, Son, Spirit, we were there from the beginning. Right? Life has to come from life. Order comes from order. Intelligence from intelligence. Those things don't seem to be too complicated to understand. Uh, and so Paul makes the same statement here. All right? For from him. Right? Initially, we're looking at the from him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So for from him, therefore may the glory be God's. Now, here's some things that the Bible says are from him. Hebrews 12.2 says that God is, he is the author. Remember that? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. All right? The author and the finisher of faith. So from him... He's the one who started that. Out of Revelation 22, it says he is the Alpha and Omega. All right? The beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. Okay? God's not trying to hide this stuff. It's not really that complicated. He tells us right from the beginning. Everything finds its significance, its beginning, its origin in him. Now, particularly in this text, is speaking of salvation. Who would have ever thought of saving a wretch like me? Not me. Right? I don't know that I want to die for me, let alone for somebody else. Who would have ever thought that it was worth them dying for me? That's a depth of riches of wisdom and knowledge that's too great for me to fathom. Right? Who would have come up with that idea? Who had that in their mind? No one, is what we said in verse 35. No one knows the mind of the Lord and how he determined or decided or why he planned the way that he did. And no one can earn that salvation from him. You can't give to God, so he's repaying, right? Because it's from him. For from him are all things. So therefore, to him be the glory. All things flow from him. Now, with that being said, I tell my students all the time, let's be sure that we say what the Bible says. If you don't like it, tough. And if I don't like it, tough. It's just the way it is. So we have to say what the Bible says. We can't just finagle it or blot out parts or make God look different than maybe culture wants to perceive him. Whatever it says, we have to say. So, help me out. Did God know that you and I would sin? Yes. Did God know that evil could be a reality? Yes. Did he know that it would be a reality? Yes. Does that make God the author of sin? No. Well, it says all things. For from him are all things. Okay? Well, let Scripture help us understand Scripture. John writes later and says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. All right, so sin does not find its origin in God. God is not the author of evil. It's not that he finds delight in terror. But God did allow, knowing 
what would be the reality? And so I've thought of it this way. Uh, this is a very skewed illustration. Uh, I had a part in bringing life into this world. And the life that I was brought into this world have committed sins. Are those sins mine? When my children sin, am I accountable? Is that my sin? No. All right? So though I may have brought them in, their sin is not mine. Okay? Did I know they would sin? Absolutely. But just because they did so, the allowance was there doesn't make me accountable or the author of their sin. All right? Now, how that's skewed, I'm a sinner as well. God is not just a little bit better human. Like the gap between us and him is immeasurable. His holiness, his purity, right? everything about him is entirely perfectly better than you and I could ever be until we're with him, right? And so at this point, yes, he knew that sin would come to be. Yes, he knew that evil would be a reality, but he is not the author of it. It doesn't stem from him. He didn't create evil to present himself as glorious. I'm going to create all this havoc, sin, so then people will look for a savior, then I get the glory because I saved them. He created it knowing that there would be the option of freedom of the will to make a choice to reject and not serve a holy God. So if God had not allowed the ability for evil, what does that make you and I? If there's no ability to choose evil, what does that make us? That's right. It makes us pre-programmed robots who are simply just living out what the programmer put within us. You type in stuff to a computer and it spits it out, right? Because that's how it's programmed. That's all it can do. So you type a word on the screen, it doesn't shoot out a cheeseburger. It just doesn't work that way. All it can do is what it's programmed to do. If God just created us to love him and love him alone with no choice for evil or to reject him, all we are then are pre-programmed robots who really have no choice. And so it's a forced love. It's not a drawing. It's not something that we have been wooed by and won by and submitted to and found hope and life and peace and all these things we mentioned earlier today within it. So God did not desire for us to be pre-programmed that way. So he had to allow for the possibility of evil so that we could genuinely have a free will that would choose either to receive or to reject. Did he know we would reject? Yeah. But just because he has foreknowledge does not make him the author of those things. All right, all things are from him. Let's go two here. Two, all things are sustained, all right, by the power of God. We're going to look here shortly just at the phrase from him. All things are sustained by the power of God. So you and I live in a world where we need constant assistance. All right? We read of some people earlier who thought they need nothing from nobody. They were dumb, right? They were wrong. We all, there's not a person in this room that doesn't need a ton of stuff from a ton of people. And if we think otherwise, we're an arrogant fool. We need people. How many of you ate this morning? What'd you eat? What was that? Cereal? Eggs? Muffins? Oatmeal? How many of us grew the food that we ate today? None of us. What's that tell us? We need some people. Who created the packaging that contained the food that you ate? That's a totally different company. 
right? And you got people making the product, then you got people making the logos, then you got people who are shipping all this stuff, right? You got people who are the retailers and all. Like, there's a ton of people involved in just getting you and I fed this morning. How arrogant of us to say, I need nothing from no one. Man, that's just dumb. We need constant assistance. Regardless of your age, regardless of who we are dealing with, everybody needs assistance. We need people to need us. You know why? So you can have a job. What happens when you're no longer needed? What is that? You're let go, right? Now that seems to be the conversation. Your services are no longer needed. Right? We're going to ask you to pack your stuff and go. Okay? When you and I are no longer needed, we're no longer employed. So we need people to need us so that we can have a job. So that we can work, so that we can earn, so that we can provide some of these things for life and we can help others who are unable to do so. So it's been my practice. Usually people just don't pass you their paycheck. I know you didn't work this last month. Here's my month's salary. Just whatever you want to do with it, go ahead. Did you take that? Yeah, I'd take that too. But I have yet to have that happen because it's just not the way it goes. We need cars to do what we do. We need phones to do what we do. We need clients, right? You fill in the blank. We're just a needy, needy people. No, I need nothing. No. But there is someone who needs nothing. And he's our incomparable God. For from him and through him, all right? He's the origin, but he's also the accomplisher, finisher, sustainer. Through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So when do we ever find God saying, hey, I could use a little help here? And I can remember in college sometimes bumming a buck or two off a buddy, you know, or a girlfriend <laughs> to pay it back, right? Because I just didn't have it. So, hey, can I, borrow, can I borrow a dollar, right? When do we ever find, hey, can I, can I sit in on this meeting because I'm not really sure what to do next. So when I listen to your wisdom from your, then I, oh, no, that makes, thank you so much. You clarified everything for me. I just didn't know what to do. We don't find that from God. doesn't need anything from anyone. So he needs no assistance. That phrase through him simply means he's able to supply everything he wants to do. Everything he's planned to do, it's all contained within him. You and I add nothing to God's conversation. You and I add nothing to God's pockets. Right? We add nothing to his wisdom, nothing to his knowledge. We add nothing to him. He needs us. He doesn't need us. Right? The fact that he loves us and desires us is just... One of those things that's hard to imagine, hard to believe. So we add absolutely nothing to him, to his wisdom, knowledge, or riches, because everything is through him. It's from him, right? He is the first and the last, which means he's going to get it done. He's the author and the finisher, which means I'm going to get it done. I take care of things, right? Speaking as God would speak. So all things are sustained by the power of God, Nothing else is needed from our end. And then three here, the incomparable God tells us that all things are for the glory of God. <clears throat> all things are for the glory of God. So all things that are from him, those things are through him. And those things that are from him and through him are ultimately to him. It's kind of this cycle or this circle. But the purpose in this is not only to display the, the glory of God, 
but it's so that those who have experienced that will proclaim the glory of God. So that everything then will be what uh, 36b says, which is everything is to bring him glory. And so if he is incomparable, as we read about in Romans 11, then it just stands that he is eternally worthy. Right? What did the elders cry out in Revelation 4? We sing it, right? Thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and power and majesty. Right? For everything has been created from your will. For everything has been created for your pleasure. Everything. So to you alone belongs glory. All things are for the glory of God. And we see that here again. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so Paul's writing this here to inspire us. See, nothing should ever be able to stir our hearts to a greater satisfaction than the glory of God. Nothing should be more important in our life at this moment than the glory of God. You say, my stomach's going off. The glory of God, all right? It's got to still be the glory. You say, man, I'm tired. I need a nap. Oh, we need the glory of God. That's what we need to, you say, oh, my body's just not working. The glory of God is what, man, I got such a busy week. I've got bills to pay. I've got worries. It's the glory of God that should be the driver in everything that we see and say and do. So nothing could ever bring us greater satisfaction or joy or stir us more than to see and to savor and to show the glory of God. You guys have heard the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it starts off by saying, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Does that sound like a bad to-do list? For the rest of eternity, we'll just glorify God and enjoy him forever. You know, is the main driver in your life right now a joy of God? When you woke up this morning and were like, man, I'm, I'm gathering with other believers, was it because of the joy of the Lord? Or was it it's Sunday and that's what Christians do and I'm one of them so I need to be there so people don't start texting me and go, where are you? Why aren't you there? How come you missed? Like, you sinner. Why did you put money in an offering plate? Why did you sing songs? Why do we play instruments? Why do we pray or write messages or teach lessons? Why do we help clean a facility? Why do we help other people in our community? Why do we share that? What drives all that? Is it the joy of the Lord? See, that's how it's intended to work. All things are for the glory of God. Now, can you imagine having a mind that, that would never grow tired of worshiping God? You ever get tired of worshiping God? You ever been in a service and you're like, man, I just, can we sit down already? We've been singing songs for 30 minutes. Can I just, I don't want to sit down, people. Or they're singing that song and it's the fourth time they've sang that same chorus and you're like, we get it. Great is our God. Is there anything else you can say? Is there anything better? You know, Revelation talks about these beings. That they just cry out day and night. Day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I get 
frustrated when we sing it for five minutes. And they're singing. I just, I can't understand a mind. I'm not there is what I'm telling you. That could sing the same ten words for all eternity and never have anything but full delight and joy. My heart needs to be rejoiced. My heart needs to be refreshed. My heart needs to be taken deeper so that what drives everything is not just I know I'm supposed to bring him glory, but that I delight in him and I delight to live for his glory. I think Paul could have really summarized these four verses. Really all he had to say was, hey, listen people, God is great. And we are not. Got it? (laughs) The end. All right, let's go to chapter 12. Because he is totally incomparable. In light of the previous 11 chapters, we've seen that men and women, we're not good. We're definitely not great. We're not even good. But God's great. And he's the only one who's incomparable. But the thing about that verse, or that doxology, is that it doesn't just end with the word forever. What's it end with? To him be the glory forever. Amen. You know what amen means? It means I agree or it means let it be. Amen calls to amen. All right? So when someone says something that's true, that's a, a, a truth that calls out for another truth to respond. So when Paul writes and says, Amen, what was he wanting the Roman believers to say in return when they read this? Amen. Right? Because Amen calls to Amen. Truth calls to truth. Spirit calls to spirit. So when you and I hear a truth, maybe we don't say Amen. Maybe we nod our head or maybe we take a note or maybe we go, Mmm. All right? You've heard people do that. Or maybe you shout or you get happy. Whatever you do, there's a response like that. I agree with that. That's true. I, I agree with that. And so I'm going to give you a chance here just to say the amen in response to Paul. And don't say it if you don't mean it, but here's some of the things that he writes in these first 11 chapters that calls his heart to, to end with the amen. So you help me out here. Maybe this isn't you, but this is me. I am helplessly and hopelessly lost in my sin, and I deserve God's holy wrath. My only hope for eternal life is that Jesus Christ shed his blood for me while I was yet a sinner. And if he had not loved me first, I would have never loved him in return. I am justified by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And I now do not need to yield to sin because I'm identified with Christ in his death and his resurrection. So four of you. He's now working everything, including my trials, for my good and for his ultimate glory. And he's now conforming me to the image of his incomparable son. Is he entirely incomparable? Amen. Right? Now you may be a lot like me. You know my personality Sorry, is not uh, super boisterous, right? I'm just not the in-your-face kind of hallelujah shouter person. 
But within me, man, that just rejoices my heart. That resonates within my mind. These things are true, and man, it stirs my heart to just want to sing and to live and to declare that he is, everything is from him, all right? Everything is through him and that everything is for him, that everything should end and will end in his glory. May that be true of my life. I want to live that amen. So our response time here today is just simply this. Are we living as though he is our all in all? If he is the all in all, for from him and through him and to him is everything, are we living as though that's true? Or am I living as though some things are from me? Some things only get done because of me. Right? The main reason that we're doing this, it's for me. It's for my pleasure. Or is it my chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? You know, is His glory my highest desire? If I were to ask you, what is your greatest delight? Is it? It's God. And the nearness of God in my life, His Spirit, the hope that I have in Him. I mean, is that just what would just resound off my lips or yours? Or do we, oh, I thank Him for my family. And I thank Him for my health. And I thank Him for my job. And I thank Him for supplying my need. Or, or is it just God Himself? You know, sometimes those would be my answers. And all that means is I've got a little bit sidetracked. I've started rejoicing over the gifts rather than being rejoiced by the giver. And I start living for the gifts rather than living for the glory of the giver. And so I'll ask you to pray along with me today if you're in that position. God, help me see things clearly. Where my life maybe has taken a sidetrack. If I'm not living for your glory, if you're not my highest desire, Get me there. Whatever it takes to get me there. Get me there. And I remember when uh, you know, my older brother in fifth grade had his appendix rupture and doctors had done everything they could for him and the nurse told my parents, it doesn't look like your son's going to make it. Uh, and I remember my mom coming to church. I was just a little kid. I was in first grade and she was singing this song Whatever it takes. All right? Whatever it takes to draw closer to you, God, that is what I'm willing to do. And that's hard. But that's, that should be the yearning of the soul of a child of God. Desire you most, delighted in you most, your glory above all things. May that be true of me. I pray that would be true of us today.